Lord. So here, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Should be on the screen. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come and meet him. For then... All those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Dear friends, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think there's two things happening in this passage that we need to highlight and pay attention to. One is this element of mystery. I think everyone in this room, if you like a good ministry, mystery, raise your hand, whether it's a book or a film, like a good mystery. I love mysteries. Whether it be author Arthur Conan Doyle, who was the doctor that turned into a writer and gave us Sherlock Holmes, or whether it be Dorothy Sayers, or even someone more new of J.K. Rowling. We love mysteries. But most of the time, I think the reason that we love mysteries so much is that by the end of the book or the film, the mystery, the thing that captivated us, the thing that we were wondering about, the curious about, that we revealed itself. And then it was nice and neat, and we understood what happened, the story, we could close the book, we could turn off the film, and it was like, okay, I'm settled, I understand now. The mystery was revealed. But what if the mystery doesn't re- reveal itself? What if it just remains mysterious? One of my favorite quotes come from a guy that maybe many of you might not have heard. His name's Callistus Square, and he's a Greek Orthodox priest. And in his book, The Orthodox Way, he says this We see that it is not the task of Christianity to always provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as He is the cause of our wonder. 
not so much the object of our knowledge as to the cause of our wonder. I feel like there are other traditions in the Christian faith that draw us into a mystery better than we do, friends. It is the Catholic tradition and it is the Episcopal and the Anglican that they have 39 articles. They have 39 things that they believe to be true about the faith and answer questions that we might have. We, as Presbyterians or Reformed thinkers, we have 160. We don't like mystery that much. We like to have the answer. We like to put it in a nice little bow. We like to, to, to answer questions maybe sometimes people aren't even asking, but we want to have an answer. I think even though Calvin was known as the theologian of the Spirit, sometimes us as Reformed thinkers, Presbyterians like myself, maybe you don't put yourself in that category. If not, just let that go then. Um, we, we don't like the Holy Spirit because the, the Bible, or we don't know how to put Him in a box because the Bible talks to Him about being a wind and He's sort of mysterious and He can come and go and He does what He pleases. And we, we don't like that feeling because it's, it's not neat enough for us. But I think that what Callistus Ware is saying to us, and I think what this passage actually reveals, is there are things that are mysterious. You know, I kind of say sometimes in kind of a provocative and silly way, if our three-pound brains can figure out God, He's not God. There are some things in our life that are just going to remain there, not, not to bring us trepidation or fear, or to, to think about God as not somebody that's loving and kind, but to draw us into the wonder of who God is. That His knowledge and His love and His mercy and His goodness it just, it's, and His power is unending. And we can't figure that all out. So I think mystery is a part of this. The other thing that I think is, is maybe daunting to think about, but it's true and all of us know it, is that the time that we have here is limited. The time that you have on earth right now is a limited time. That's hard to think about sometimes. Dr. Yarborough was one of my favorite professors while I was at Covenant. And he was, man, he was spooky, spooky Yoda smart. I mean, really spooky Yoda smart. He was a lumberjack that grew up in the Pacific Northwest. He legitimately was a lumberjack. And then he got interested more in uh, philosophy and theology. And uh, he was such a smart man that he went to Germany to teach theology to Germans in German. And it was one of those moments where he was getting ready to travel over to Germany and he was going to be away for a couple of weeks and he was telling all of us, I'm not going to be with you because I'm doing this. And at the end, and he says, I will return if God wills it. And then I began to notice throughout the rest of the year, he said, I will do this if God wills it. I will do this if God wills it. And at first, my mind was just like, quit trying to be pious. You know, if God wills it. Okay, sure. You know, you'll be back. Ha ha. What I begin to understand is he meant it. What he understood is was the past was gone. It was left. Uh, we can think about the past. We can, we can fawn over the past. We can look at the past and reflect on it. And maybe 
sad, it may be beautiful, but the past is gone. The, the future has no guarantee. What we are certain of is now. This moment, here. But the Scripture says none of us are promised tomorrow. We all understand this. And then even if we are see tomorrow, our time here is limited. Dr. Yarborough understood that at least. There have been moments where I said, if God wills it, and I felt like, you can't say that. You really don't feel it. You really don't mean it. Because let's just be honest, I feel like I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I feel like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to do the normal routines that we have. I'm going to try and help our children to learn online. That's been a nightmare. Oh my gosh. It has been a nightmare. It has not worked out accordingly. Life has been very, very messy. But I honestly feel like that's what's going to happen. But texts like this come and they say, you know what? That doesn't mean you're necessarily promised tomorrow. For the last five weeks, friends, we focused on parables that Jesus has stories that He's told us. Remember, remember, not in a vacuum. He doesn't tell these out just into the cosmos. It's to a particular place and person and, and, and a time. It's first century Palestine to a certain group of people with certain understandings and real life issues like you and I have. And He tells these stories in order to bring them to a crossroads in their life. Whether you're going to go right or you're going to go left. You're going to choose life or you're going to choose death. We focus on parables where we see Jesus constantly choosing people over possessions and seeking out people and pursuing people and loving people. But I think this morning, it's reversed. You just got to walk with me a little bit on this before you jump to conclusions. But I think this is one of those passages that Paul says we work out our fear and trembling we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think this is one of those that kind of turns it on us and say, how are we choosing Christ? How are we in our day-to-day clock-in, clock-out, sunrise, sunset life is choosing Christ? How are you waking up in the morning not asking the questions necessarily, what do I have to do, but who am I becoming? And how is my choosing Jesus to walk, to follow, to live with Him? How am I doing that? What should I do with my life? What should I do with the time that I have been given? How should I be choosing Christ over everything? How should I, should I make the decision to then, again today take up my cross and follow Him. I think this passage is a reminder us that the very best things that we can do with the time, with the days that we've been given, with the talents and gifts that God has given us, the ways that He has blessed us, is for us to wake up every single morning, every single moment, and say, I'm choosing Christ. That we need to allow God to love us. That we need to allow God to lavish His love upon us. But then also we need to choose to offer. Choose to give. Choose to love our neighbors. Choose to forgive those that have sinned against us. To choose to be merciful and compassionate and to pursue God and others. We choose. 
Because we do know that the days that we have been given by God are truly gifts, but they are limited. We all know that time and life is short. This is the day of salvation. And Jesus tells us this, how we can do it through this story. In Matthew 25. Now in order to understand what we're, where we're going to be heading, we have to, we have to see the setting. Okay? So the scripture talks about a bride and a bridegroom. This is a wedding. But there's a difference in weddings in the first century Near East than there is now. Weddings in that time took, took place in two houses. You had one house over here that had bride, the bridegroom and the guests. And he was over here, and the party would start here. And they would, people would begin to arrive, and people would begin to gather and hang out. But there's a house over here. It could be across the village. could be in a different village where the bride and the bridesmaids were. And then the groom, he would leave, and he would take his, bride, his groomsmen, and they would get in their limo, and they would head over to the bride's house, and they would pick up the bride. And then they would do what all of us would do. They'd take our time getting back. So they would go get the bride and they would gather her and she would, she would go come out and they would take the long way home and they would stop off at the, the cool places in the village and they'd take selfies and they'd live tweet their whole experience as they're heading back to the reception, right? They would tarry, they would take their time. What was happening is that the bride's maids were waiting for the call. But the groom took his time. They didn't go back to the party because once he brought the bride back to his parents' house, his family home, then they would send out the call. The bridegroom is here. The banquet is ready. Come. Now what we understand about kind of Middle Eastern sort of cultures and concepts is that it would be anywhere from five to seven days, this, this wedding, this celebration, but that day wouldn't start until the bridegroom came with his bride down at house one, and then they would send out the call. It's ready. Come out. He's ready. Come. Now, most of the time, they understood that it was a day call. They would call sometime while it was daylight, typically. But this time, the bridegroom didn't call during the day. And so the bridesmaids are waiting. All that they're focusing on is teas and cake, and they can't wait to celebrate. And they, they all have the same super tacky dresses that they bought at Belk or Macy's or something. And they're waiting. But they all have lamps, and they all have oil. Well, five have oil. Because they know that maybe at some time, this is the ancient Middle East, they don't have lights, so they would trim their lamps and they would head. But the call comes at midnight and says, the bridegroom is ready, come. But they're asleep, they're tired. So all of them wake up and they trim their lamps and they begin to head. And the five foolish brides look, bridesmaids look at the wise and say, we don't have enough, it's dark, we can't get there. This is not the way that it worked out. This is not what we planned for. They say, well, you need to go to the marketplace and you need to buy some. Because we don't have enough to give you. And so they head. 
The five wise get in. The door is locked and closed. And then the other five, they rush to the house and say, let us in. And then the master said, I don't know you. That's the story. Let's pray. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) You want me to? Just leave it out there? That's the story, friends. Nobody really argues of that the bridegroom is Jesus. Nobody argues that the bridesmaids are you and I. The wise bridesmaids, nothing will stop them to get in. They're, they're going to get in. But it seems as though the foolish, something gets in the way. Something happens along the way. I want to reaffirm and tell you guys very clearly that if that it is not the good works that we do, it is not the good things that we do that saves us, okay? Be really clear, that doesn't save us, nor does the evil things that we do save us. It is by faith or unfaith, period. It is by faith. But there's something else here. There's something else happening in this parable. That the primacy of our faith is finally set forth in a way that that meets this lurking objection that I think all of us maybe have had at times when we've heard things like this, when we've heard that we, we believe. and we, Great, we believe. Can we be honest? Has anybody ever thought that, oh, we believe and we ascribe to this sort of, sort of idea or this proposition that it's kind of, we believe it, and you thought maybe in the back of your head that's all? It's kind of all that's required? Maybe that when you've heard this sort of thing preached, you say, okay, cool. Got it. I think assuming falsely that faith is simply this kind of intellectual assent to some sort of proposition. It's not just in our heads. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's more required. There's, it's, salvation is not just something that we believe and faith is not something that we just ascend to. It's, it's a trusting relationship in a person. It's a trusting relationship in a person. What this really smart guy, his name's Robert Ferreira Capon. If you never read him, I highly suggest you do. He says the difference between the foolish and the wise is the wise, their wisdom wasn't in things of this world. Their wisdom was trust in something other. Trust in something bigger. Trust in something beyond what they can see. Think about this. If it's a daytime call that they normally get a call from the bridegroom to go, if it's a daytime call, why would you need extra oil? It doesn't make sense. But somehow they knew of something. They were looking at something different. They were trusting in something more. But the foolish, he says, these foolish maids, their wisdom was in the world. They, all they could see is what they could see. Well, it was daytime. Well, guess what? Our life, brothers and sisters, is messy. It doesn't always work out like we thought. It doesn't always come together like we hoped. 
Sometimes there's tragedy and trauma in our life. Sometimes there's something around the corner that we don't see. The wise knew that. The wise saw something other. Put their trust and faith in something beyond what they could tangibly see or feel. I think what they're trying to say, friends, is trying to understand, help us to see is that what Dallas Willard says is that grace is not opposed. Grace is opposed to earning, right? You don't earn grace. You don't earn the gift of salvation. So grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. I think this passage reminds us that there is some human agency involved in this, friends. There is a choosing that you and I have we know this in reality, right? We know this in, in truth. Think about this. If you took a job tomorrow and you signed on the dotted line and that you've, you've a salary that they're going to give you, you have responsibilities and things that you're supposed to follow through. There, you have an office that you might have to go to or a place that you have to be on time. You don't show up the next day after you've signed it and said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to pull away. Well, guess what? You're going to lose your job. You don't tell a friend, I will be with you through thick and thin. I will never leave you. Whatever you need, I'm going to be there for you. And then just never do it. You've got to prove over and over and over again that I will be with you, that I will show up when you need me. And even more, we see it in marriage. You can get married on the day but you can say, I will give you my life. I will offer everything that I have through thick and thin, through, till death do his part, sickness and health. You can say all of those things, but if you walk away from it, you don't have a marriage. And friends, there is some element here, and it's all through the Scriptures if you look at it, there is an element of which when we say, yes, I believe, I believe in the finished work of the risen Lord Jesus that you have done, there is a walking out that was required of us. There's a walking out in it. This is not devoid of human agency. This is not devoid of you and I making decisions to choose. I feel like sometimes justification like the cross is the object of our justification. Yes, it is He, Jesus, that has done what we need and He has fulfilled and that is wonderful and beautiful and good. But not so much the object of our sanctification where every single day we wake up and say, my life for yours. I'll take up my cross and follow you today. Now I know that I'm on TV or screens which I don't like and I know that I sound like choose this day whom you'll serve. I don't like that, but it's the way that it is. There's something about this. It's... Nobody comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit first draws Him. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit draws Him. But there is an element that we continue to respond to Him. That we can choose to love. That we can actually choose to forgive. We can choose to offer mercy. We can choose what we do with our time. 
So the question is, what do we do with this? I wrestled with, do I talk about the oil? Well, nobody knows. No, no theologian says this is what the oil means. Actually, most modern translators right now say that the oil didn't mean anything by Jesus. It's just oil. It's kind of what they use. Lampstands, it's what they, lamps, it's what they use. Didn't mean anything. So I don't know what to do about the oil. Then I looked at the oil in the New Testament and saw that oil was used for the priesthood and oil was used for sacrifice and oil was used for joy and all of these things that I could say, well, it, it, means, it means that we need to, to, that we're priests and so we need to pray or it means oil is for sacrifice so, so we're generous people and we bring our gifts to God or, or that, <laughs> that we're supposed to have joy. That we, I don't know. I don't know. But I knew know that God loves us, that He's drawn him, He's drawn to us, that we are somehow we've rejected it, but yet He continues to pursue us, continues to love us. And I know that there is some way that we have to respond to that. There's something that we do. This does feel mysterious. So what are the things we know? God loves you. God forgives. That God is drawing you. That God doesn't want to leave you. He will not forsake you. But there are choices that we make that echo in eternity. There are choices that we make now. As how is our life then reflecting those things that we claim? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.